What's up, guys? Welcome to the uh, inaugural episode of the Institute of Higher Earning podcast. Pretty exciting. So as my first two guests, we're actually going to go through the office and talk about office stuff. My guest uh, directly on my right is Donovan. He does Dispo for our company. And to his right is Jessica. She does acquisitions for her company. In this podcast, we're going to go over quite a bit of content about how the traditional wholesale model is dead. I think it was two years ago. We talked about wholesaling houses is dead. We threw an event. We foretold this. We are gurus uh, on the uh, on the psychic medium space in terms of like seeing into the future, and that's how we stay in business. Now I say that kind of joking, but really in a changing marketplace, when the market is changing with what buyers are buying, what sellers can sell for, you need to stay above, uh, ahead of the curve. Otherwise, you're going to be left in the dust. You're going to lose market share. You're potentially going to go out of business. You got to stay on top of things. We're going to talk specifically about why the traditional wholesale model of 80% minus repairs, 75% minus repairs was always a broken model, but specifically why it's not a great model in a changing marketplace. And then we're going to go into after that, we're going to talk quite a bit about uh, conversations between the dispo department in your company, in your wholesale company, and acquisitions in your wholesale company, how they need to work in unison. That means together for you, uh, for, you know, you folks. Um, <laughs> to fulfill a more complete transaction, to maximize your profit, to make more money, to make the process smoother. If you don't have these communication issues, the only way we found out about this being a minor bump, speed bump, I call it a speed bump, I don't think it, was a, uh, it wasn't a big thing to get over, but the only way we found out about it is by bumping into ourselves and then applying these changes in our business. So welcome to the first episode. Why are we credible in terms of talking about this specific topic? Well, we operate out of uh, Dallas, Texas, so a highly competitive, and it's been competitive for as long as I've moved out here, lived out here rather, nine years. Uh, we work throughout all the North Texas area. We do deals in Houston, Florida, Georgia, and Arkansas. We do a hybrid model, so we're not just a traditional wholesale outfit. We've never abided by the 80% minus repairs rule. Um, again, that model works in an upward trending market, in a flattening market or a downward trending market, it can work until it doesn't work. So that's what we're going to be talking about. We move a ton of deals. Um, and let's talk to acquisitions and Dispo. Let's start with Dispo about why this model is changing, why 80% minus repairs is not working anymore. Um, I mean, the reason it's dead is because the market changes. You know, whenever two years ago when um, we were in an upward trending market, Buyers were buying at 80 plus percent of our deals. It was easy, you know. The way that I worked it was, I would see how much I could sell a deal for. We would subtract 10,000 from it, and we would try to purchase it at that. You know, once the market changed, that didn't work anymore. Buyers started being a lot more conservative with their numbers. Um, it was hard to find these buyers. A lot of them, you know, are just seasonal buyers. Um, they did a couple deals, one maybe two a year, and then they would get out. So that model just stopped working when the when the market changed. Um, so the way that we do it now is, I think, a lot more effective. Yeah, I just think 80% minus repairs or 70% minus repairs, 65% minus repairs, right? It's so broad and real estate is very deal specific, right? So depending on what deal you're doing, where it's located at, what's going on in that area, you have to make adjustments. So if you're always buying based on the same formula, not only will that formula maybe not work for that particular deal, but also you could be losing out on a lot of potential profit because you're offering too high, right? So I'm acquisitions. Anytime anybody beats me by, you know, 
more than 10K, like that's on you. Like that's your fault for offering too much because they were, you know, going to sign my contract, right? But then got a higher offer for 40K higher. Of course, they're going to check, uh, choose the one that's 40K higher. But then are you going to be able to perform on that? And even if you do perform on that, you've lost out on that potential profit that you could have gotten on that deal. So it's very deal specific whenever you're trying to figure out what to offer. Um, you know, we use 70% minus repairs as our guideline usually as a max allowable offer. That's not gonna be, you know, what we start with numbers wise. We're starting with their problems and what solutions do we have for them, right? So even in some of those scenarios where somebody's beat me by 40K, they've still chosen to go with me. Let's talk about that real quick for, again, the, the credibility kind of standpoint on the podcast um, is two different scenarios. One is where someone, where some seller's about to sign with us and they end up going with another contract that's 40 or 50K higher. Um, why that particular wholesaler or buyer probably isn't as good as they should be. Let's talk about that first. And then let's talk about the other scenario, the opposite side of that coin where maybe that seller is kind of sorting between us and another computer, uh, competitor in the marketplace and why they choose to go with us. So let's go with uh, number one first. When we get beat, why why we get pissed off at the wholesaler beating us by $40,000 as opposed to 5K? Why is that wholesaler fundamentally not good at their job if the seller was about to sign for us 40K cheaper? Yeah. One it makes me worry that they're going to be able to perform for them because we have a great buyer's list, a great buyer's pool. We have lots of different exit strategies that we can do. So if somebody's going up that high, most of the time I worry that they're going to end up backing out on the seller, not taking care of the seller, not doing what they said they were going to do. Um, and then even if they are able to perform at that number, what I don't understand is where those margins are. Like it's got to be a new newer investor who's purchasing from that wholesaler at those numbers. Um, and you're going to put your investor, like your actual person who's doing the flip, you're going to put them at a disadvantage by selling it to them that high too. So, the, the, so there's a performance issue. So as, from the education side or from the business owner perspective, I get more upset at the wholesaler. And again, we don't lose these very often, but that happens from time to time. I get more upset about the wholesaler because they're fundamentally in that case running a business model that's low margin that isn't based on actually solving the fundamental issues of the seller. Because if they were solving those problems with the seller, they would be able to buy at closer to our price. So basically they're running a business that is kind of flipped on its head in terms of like, well, what should they be focusing on? From the acquisition side, they shouldn't be focusing on what's the max I can give the seller. They should be focusing on what does the seller need to fulfill what the seller's objective is. So again, from the education and business perspective, I would much rather get beat by $5,000 from a good wholesaler that is good at beating us because that means they were able to negotiate as well as we were. Yeah. And we have like that much tweaking to do. If they're beating us by $40,000, even if they perform, if they do perform good for them, and maybe that's good for the seller if the seller actually needed that much more money, you know, whatever that circumstance is. But if they beat us by $40,000 and if the seller was that close to selling with us, then that means that they left $35,000 on the table and that's not good for their company. So we're about what's the health of the company, and obviously, how does that health how does that health fulfill a need for the seller? Yeah, and then the flip side of it, whenever you know somebody has an offer that's forty k higher than mine, but the seller still chooses to go with me, um, 
that is because I'm solving those problems, right? So whatever we've discussed whenever I went to look at the house, you know, the timeline that they need to get to the next place, if there's a foreclosure process going on, if there's affidavit of airships that need to be filled out, there's probate, there's whatever those so issues on, on. So are. The, the listeners not in Texas, an affidavit of airship is in Texas, there's a statute of being able to bypass probate, assuming we get sign-offs from all of the heirs uh, on the potential uh, line or chain of title. So for, for you guys that don't have that, um, states that don't have affidavits of airship, it's basically a shortened probate thing. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, it's a good point. And I feel sorry for the states that don't have affidavit of airships because it just makes it so much harder. But I love our affidavits of airship. They're a pain in the ass too, but we can get things done a little bit more quickly that way a lot of times. Um, but being able to solve those problems and being on their side, figuring out what those problems are even. I think some wholesalers don't even go into that discussion. It's all numbers. It's all, um, you know, they go look at the house and just point out all the things that are wrong with it. So I'm not gonna be able to pay you what you're asking. This is what I can pay, right? When I go to a house, like they know what's wrong with it, right? <laughs> Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they'll tell you, you know, the carpet's in great condition. It's like, no, <laughs> the carpet's gonna Orange. go. <laughs> like it's disgusting, right? But that's, the condition of the house, while yes, it factors into my numbers, it's not going to be the main talking point whenever I'm with a seller. Um, there's more important things. To so that, that goes to why too. the that goes to why the eighty percent minus repairs model I think is broken, and why and we'll get into the the conversation of why that is later. But really, when we're negotiating with a seller for a deal, like obviously we want to make a bunch of money, but we want to help the seller, and we don't do that by even psychologically because what's the biggest trauma that a seller is generally under. It's not generally a money-based trauma. It's generally some sort of psychological trauma about their house causing stress to them in some way or another, about an external factor um, that we may or may not know about, like a foreclosure or a family issue or something like that that's causing external trauma. So then the house itself is contributing to that trauma. So if we focus on the house, if we go in like a um, maybe an untrained VA or like a, a, some of our not great competition, go in and start Picking apart the house, picking apart the issues on the house. Hey, Mr. Seller, you have bottles of pee sitting in the corner here. This is why you can't get what you want for this house. Well, I don't even know what the seller wants for the house at that point. So now we're contributing to that trauma because we're trying to do the 80% minus repairs. We're trying to lead, we're trying to lead with dispo instead of lead with problem solving to the seller. So then we change up the conversation and make the conversation. What's it, what's, what do I like to say on our podcast and stuff? Like, what's my favorite topic? My favorite topic is me. So we go into the house and we talk to the seller about their favorite topic, which is them. Uh, and then doing that allows us to solve the them problem as opposed to the it problem. The them problem is what's going on with them. The it problem is the house. Well, the problem with the house is the house, us buying the house is actually the solution to their problem. So if we go in and make the house a contributing factor to their problem, oh, Mr. Seller, your roof is leaking, your, your drywall is cracked, your foundation is bad. They already know all that. So now we're not building the rapport. We're not having a conversation with the seller to... A, allow us to buy better, but we're also breaking trust with the seller because we're not there to actually address their fundamental problem. I agree. And then whenever you you don't address their problems, right, if it's purely numbers. So a lot of the um, conversations that we get into over the phone where they're like, you know, can you just give me a ballpark number before I even decide if I want to have you out to the house? Or I'm just thinking about it, trying to get some numbers like the conversion rate for calls like that and for people like that who don't 
uh, open up to you is going to be so much lower and then your percentages on those, right? Your margins on those are going to be so much lower too because it's just based on numbers. It's not, uh, you're not building rapport. They're not going with you because they trust that you're going to perform for them. It's purely my number's higher than the next guy's number. And that's never the negotiations that I want to be in. Um, because I want my number to be lower than the next guy's number and you still choose me because you know that I'm going to follow through. You know that I'm going to take care of those issues that I said I was going to take care of. Um, and providing them with that security and that peace of mind has really helped in my negotiations for getting the price lower. So then let's take it from, because we've talked a lot about acquisitions and about actual acquisitions techniques. Let's talk about why the traditional model is broken. Um, I want to start with a kind of a rehash of someone who came from more, the more traditional model, Donovan here on the Dispo side, and talk about a standard, because we do volume, we do a lot of volume in our company, but we do volume and margin, and that's very difficult to do without um, optimizing a lot of things in the company that a lot of people just don't know how to do. So what I mean by that is a lot of the traditional volume-based wholesale companies, I think they lead with Dispo. I think they lead with what can I sell the house for, and then they back into the other aspects of the negotiation tactic because they're trying to do volume because they're trying to do multiple markets and we proved that you can do volume in multiple markets with an acquisition heavy strategy a lot of wholesalers get into trouble focusing just on volume from a dispo strategy and why is that a problem so run us through a traditional kind of dispo outlet or dispo like focused wholesale company yeah so i mean when I started wholesaling, um, even on the acquisition side, like you said, you know, we're taught just worry about numbers, worry about the house. And I think that's why you have those conversations with those sellers, because they're used to 10, 20 different wholesalers calling them, asking them the same exact questions, giving them the same ballpark. So they don't want to have long conversations with you. Um, so that, that's the main thing. The other thing is a lot of wholesalers, they lead, like TJ said, with Dispo. So... Mm. The way that I was taught to do it is, okay, let's run numbers, let's see what I could sell this deal for, and then we'll subtract 5, 10, whatever we want to profit off of it, and then we'll try to lock it up for that number. The issue with that is, one, are your numbers even true? Are, are your ARVs and comps and your repair costs, you know, a lot of wholesalers are taught to judge repairs based on $20, $30 a square foot, and we all know that's not true. Yeah. So... The issue with that is, you know, I go into this deal, I look at the highest ARV, I say, cool, that's our ARV. Obviously, you know, Texas is a big market, so maybe I can sell this at 80%. I'll take 80% of the ARV minus repair costs, which just like I said, you know, a lot of wholesalers are doing $20 a square foot. Okay, that gives me, let's say 200,000. I wanna make 10K off of this, so what I'm gonna try to do is go lock this up at 190. Well, that's not gonna work because my ARV is too high, you know, I'm not running the proper comps, I'm not looking at what the actives are, you know, I'm not looking if these actives are actually dropping, I'm not looking at, um, you know, what the actual repair cost could be, you know, the, the $20 a square foot doesn't work, so, what, you know, what does the house need, and that's going to help me come up with better numbers for the deal. So I think that's the reason that um, a lot of wholesalers struggle is because, you know, you, you lead with the dispo, you lead with how much could I sell this for, you try to lock it up on those numbers. But a lot of times those numbers that they're basing it off of aren't true to begin with. No, that's, that's a good point. And going back to why wholesaling houses is dead, which is what I said two years ago, I think. It, um, leading with dispo, if you don't know the market really, really, really well, um, is going to cause a lot of friction in your business. It's going to cause a lot of operational drag. It's going to cause a lot of lost 
even opportunity cost where you're not a maximizing leads because you're maybe not selling as well as you should, but also you're pursuing leads that have a very low probability of coming to a closed transaction because you're not buying right to begin with. So with that, with that being said, what's, what's like a standard drop rate that our competitors have um, in the space? Because we talked to a lot of our friends that are working. And it doesn't mean there's nothing wrong with dropping contracts. There's nothing wrong with having a drop rate. There's nothing wrong with having a fallout rate. That's part of the business. Like we have, we have one too. But what would be ours maybe compared to someone else's? And we don't have the exact KPIs, but what is like a volume-based company that's trying to market all over 10 different states that doesn't know the markets? What might the drop rate be? I mean, 50 to 60%, if not higher, especially for these, some of the newer guys. Yeah. And that comes from, just like we said, not knowing your numbers. Um, also, doing deals virtually. You know, doing deals virtually is hard. Um, and that's kind of, I think, what they struggle with. You know, talking to a seller, you can only get so much information out of a seller over the phone. And you can only reach, you know, so much of um, a buyer's pool just virtually. So, you know, actually being able to go to these appointments and... Uh, you know, go to networking events and meeting buyers and building relationships with all parties involved helps a lot. Yeah, and so what's the lowest hanging fruit, I guess, when you're negotiating virtually? Because I get phone calls from VAs, you know, trying to buy our rental properties or, you know, buy our personal residence or whatever. And the lowest barrier to entry is qualifying the property. We keep going back to that. Like, how do we qualify the property? Well, we ask about the property. Um, that doesn't build a relationship on the acquisition side. It doesn't qualify the seller. It doesn't, it doesn't actually build a relationship with the seller. So back to drop rate, I think it might be as high as 75 to 80% with some of the competitors out there. And again, I'm not saying that makes it a bad company. I'm just saying that you're chasing 80% of the deals you're chasing. Um, you're wasting titles time because you're submitting for title, even though your likelihood of closing is now 20%. Uh, so you're pissing off title. You're trying to wear out buyers, like end buyers, because you're calling up every end buyer you can to try to squeeze a little bit. And not only, so not only are you dropping, you know, 50, 60 or maybe 75, 80%, but you're also chasing smaller margin deals because you're trying to build up that volume because you haven't bought better. Um, and I think that goes back to the Dispo heavy wholesale company. If you're relying on Dispo to feed acquisitions, to tell acquisitions what you can pay for, and Dispo's wrong, and Dispo's going to be wrong if we're dealing in a bunch of multiple markets that we don't understand, if we don't have a solid buyer's list, um, this was going to be wrong, just the, the way the math works, then the buyer's, the buyer's side isn't going to be able to negotiate as strongly for the actual property because they're going to be trying to buy the contract. Exactly. And when you, when you work that way, just like you said, you know, you, you lose your relationship with these title companies. Um, we, when I started out wholesaling, we went through probably four or five different title companies, and it was literally just a matter of them getting tired of us terminating deals that we're sending them. And uh, especially in Texas, you know, we have a lot of deals that have a lot of title issues. So title has to do a lot of work. So when they do, you know, two or three work uh, weeks of, you know, doing affidavit of airships and a bunch of other probate things just for us to terminate on the deal because we can't find a buyer, you lose those relationships with the title companies. And you also lose relationships with buyers when you're constantly sending them not deals. When you're sending things uh, with no equity, you know, no profit margin for anybody involved, that buyer is going to stop responding to your text. They're going to stop. They're going to unsubscribe from your email list. They're going to stop answering your calls because they know that this wholesaler is just wasting, you know, their time. Mm -hmm. Now that makes a lot of sense. So I think it's accurate to say the traditional model then relies a lot on dispo to inform acquisitions of what can I sell this for? I can sell this for 200k. So you need to lock it up at 190. We flip that on the on its head. We flip that 180 generally. Like, and we'll still we'll, we'll play that model when we have to. 
if we have a market that we know we can sell for a certain number at, and it's a market that maybe we don't want to buy at ourselves, or that we don't have a strong buyer's pool at, we'll play that model. But that's the, that's the anomaly for us, versus a team like ours, we rely a lot more heavily on the acquisition side to get a good deal. And so talk a little bit more, I guess, about how, how we do that, about how we actually um, ascertain sellers' needs, and then about how we work as diligently as we can to help fulfill those needs for the seller. Because again, I keep going back to, it's not generally about the money primarily for the seller. Yeah, the only time we do the traditional model is if they're pushing me, they have to have this number, right? 240 is the number I have to have. And I know they'll sign a contract at 240, right? And it's, we had some marketing money that went into it, right? So um, I want to try to make that happen, you know, if, if there's a way to make it happen. And, and so I'll call Don. And they, and they won't sign a contract at 239. Right, exactly, exactly. So I'll call Don and say, you know, can you sell this for more than 240? What do you think you can sell it for? And I'll be upfront with the seller then too, to say, we're going to try this for you, right? Like. If it's a wholesale deal where I've negotiated, they've gone with my number, you know, I don't need to tell them I'm going to try for them because I know it's going to happen. Um, but we'll do the traditional model if if they push me too far yeah, or have to have that's that. That's very number. rare with yeah. the amount of volume that we do. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and that and that, so the model does have a place. It has yeah, a place, yeah. but it shouldn't be if you're relying for that fundamentally for 100% of your business. Mm -hmm. Not only does does it not have a very good place. But in a market that's flattening or potentially declining, depending on the submarket, uh, it puts your business at a lot of jeopardy. Because now your drop rate, if your drop rate in a good market is, say, 65%, uh, and that's probably pretty conservative, I think, um, now your drop rate in a slowing market is, is actually the 80%. So if you're really, really good in a market like this, or if you're, like barely, if you're barely making it in a market that's like this, what happens when the market goes like that? What happens when the market goes like that? Yeah. Then you're out of business, or then you're really hurting. You're not making that Lambo payment. So now you got to get into the guru space and <laughs> tell everyone else to do the business as bad as your business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So our, our normal model, right, is the way we want to do our acquisitions is based on the seller's needs and um, based on what we think they will agree to and be happy with, right? We want our sellers, for the most part, to be happy with their service, right? So we ask them, you know, what their next steps are. We don't want them to be homeless, right? Like that's not the goal. After we buy your house, you've got to have somewhere to go next. Figure out what those next steps are. Figure out what the timeline is. Figure out where the places are that we can insert, insert ourselves to help or insert ourselves to give them some peace of mind. Right, so a lot of people are just nervous about the whole process, right? Maybe they've already had a wholesaler back out on them. We get a lot of those leads too. So being upfront with them and saying, we want to have the hard conversation now, right? And give you a price that's not gonna change, right? So if we tell you 200, we're gonna close at 200. I can do no option period with yeah. that, right? But if it's, um, you know, 240, like, I know that's the number you're asking for, but it's just not reasonable and here's why, right? I'm gonna have that conversation with you. I'm not gonna be the person who's like, okay, let's contract it at 240 um, and tell you I'm gonna be able to perform, mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of wholesalers, I think that's where they get in trouble, right? They said they'll sign at 240, I'll just sign it at 240. I'll go back and try to renegotiate later, 
Yeah, and just to piggyback off that, I mean, you're not only having those hard conversations, but you're having honest conversations, and that's the thing that a lot of wholesalers, they don't do. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll lie and they'll tell. First of all, they're lying that they're buying it when they know that they're not. They're just looking to assign it. So that's the first lie. The second lie is, you know, promising these people that you can do numbers that you know you can't perform it. Um, and that's the other thing. Like, we don't, people don't realize that, you know, these are people's homesteads. This is where they live. Like you said, we don't want to make anyone homeless. A lot of these wholesalers don't care. You know, they'll lock up something in pre-foreclosure. And, you know, if they can't sell it, then they terminate and these sellers are out of a home. So that's the other thing that, you know, differentiates everyone is not only do you have to have these hard conversations, but you have to have honest conversations. And that's not only about numbers, but that's about, um, you know, the situation in itself. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because the timeline and the, the needs are so important. And if you go into something where you're not confident you'll be able to perform for them, it's just something that we wouldn't want to enter into mm -hmm. if we knew it was a foreclosure or they've got money down on a trailer and they're going to lose that money if they don't get the rest of the money in time, right? That sort yeah. of stuff. We've got to make sure that we're taking care of people because we get a lot of referrals too mm -hmm. from past uh, sellers. So it's really important to do what you say you're going to do or if there's a chance you're not going to be able to do what you say you're going to do, already let them know ahead of time that that's a possibility yeah. that could come up. So. Yeah, we're not so we're not big fans in our company of a lot of the um, the multiple offers. Like give them give them a couple different offers or whatever. We're not like if if we have to submit offers to them, that means we haven't done our due diligence on the seller to figure out what they actually fundamentally need. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people in the marketplace that'll say, well, I'll give them a cash offer. And that'll be one price. And then I'll give them a offer with some seller financing or something else, and that'll be a you know different price. And then I'll give them a listing price. Well, if we're if we're giving them three things to choose from, first of all, most people get a menu from Jack in the Box and they pick the same thing every time because they don't want to look at the rest of the McDonald's. They don't want to look at the rest of the menu. So they pick they pick one thing anyway. If we're giving a whole bunch of different choices, unless there's a reason to give someone maybe a binary choice then we're overloading them with options that don't really fit their actual needs and we haven't done our job as the acquisition team to find out what their needs are. Yeah. You have to steer them to the option that you think's best for their needs yeah. and then like tie it to those needs, right? They so, can always say no. Yeah. Like they can always say no. Hey, my cash offer is 100 grand. No. That's an acceptable answer. It's the best word, it's the best complete sentence in the English language <laughs> and it's the shortest one. It's two letters and it's a complete sentence. They can say no. And then, okay, well, let's, Go, go through that train of thought. Okay, no doesn't work. Okay, well, in your circumstance, that is our cash offer. Like we cannot pay more than that in cash, but we have some other op we have some other options that might fulfill your need. And let's would you be receptive to talking about the benefits and the potential disadvantages of these other offers, Mr. Seller? And they're usually open to that conversation too, because if your cash offer is not going to work they're not gonna get another cash offer that's gonna work either. You know, if you've done your part and built the rapport and they understand, you know, they trust you at that point, right? Usually when we're getting to that cash offer, they trust us by that point. So if that's not gonna be high enough, then you say, I do have some other creative options. I think this one might be a good fit for you. Would you be open to hearing about that? And usually they're receptive to it. And because you've done that pre-work and had the hard conversation, then the more creative conversation is easier to have than if you would have gone straight to that creative conversation. Like nobody wants to leave a mortgage in their name and have somebody make yeah. their payments. Like if that's just what I came at you at, like with, that's, right? That's not 
generally in the seller's right. best interest 100% mm -hmm. of the time. Yeah. Now, there's situations where sub twos absolutely make sense, mm -hmm. and they're a great tool in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. But yeah, exactly. If that's the only thing you have, and the same thing, if, if all you have is 80% minus repairs, because that's what Dispo says, well, what happens when, you know, ARV changes? What happens when 80% changes to 75%? Well, now your business is in jeopardy. Um, I want to touch really quick about a binary choice because I gave the three examples of a cash, maybe a sub two, and a listing kind of choice. Let's do a let's do an example of when a binary choice um, makes a lot of sense for a seller. So a binary choice is we either have this or we have this, and these really are your only two options. Um, and I think a pre foreclosure is a good example because we have so in our business we say we have um, sellers that always have a combination of motivation and urgency. Now if you have an urgent seller with high motivation then that's great. Then you have a deal. Then we sign the contract, it's good to go, and that's fine. But oftentimes, we'll have a seller with high urgency but low motivation. And a traditional way of looking at that might be a pre-foreclosure seller that had deferments throughout COVID and now has an impending foreclosure. In Texas, they're all on the, what, first Tuesdays of the month or whatever. So they have a foreclosure in a week and a half. Um, and they've been kicking the can down the road for two years. So now they have a ton of urgency but they don't know what their urgency is. They think that they have options. They think that they have not urgency. They think they have plenty of time. So walk through like a scenario with that where we need to give them a binary choice. Yeah, so a lot of times too with those foreclosures, the foreclosure itself has been pushed off multiple times too. So even though they're scheduled for that, you know, November 7th auction date, they don't think November 7th is really going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have like an educational conversation with them. Like, do you have the paperwork showing that the foreclosure has been delayed? Uh, have you spoken with the bank? Did they say it's been delayed? And a lot of times they don't. And so you have to get them to realize that this is really happening, right? So that's step one. After they realize that it's really happening, then you go over your options. So um, I think there's, the cash number is always our option, right? Cash, 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 that's what we want, that's what we want you to take. If you don't do that, then you're going to lose the house. You talk to them about the eviction process that's gonna happen, how quickly that happens. You're, do you know where you're gonna go after that when that happens? Do you have a plan for that, right? So really laying that out. Um, and then the only other option that we, or the normal other option that we go to with those would be a short sale. Um, because or they're behind two. on payments or, or a sub two, yeah. So um, even even that's not necessarily a, a binary choice. That's yeah. a that's a three or four different types of choices. Um, but what is a binary choice is doing something or doing nothing. Like that's always a choice. I can either turn right or I can sit here. Uh, that's a binary choice. I can go straight or I can sit here. There's always a binary choice. It's not a three way choice. It's what am I going to do? Is sitting here a choice? Okay, I can sit here. That's a choice. We need to push them into the other binary choice of acting because sitting here, yeah, that's a choice, but sitting here has catastrophic outcome, catastrophic results for the seller. Mr. Seller, you're going to lose your house on Tuesday. You either do some option or you lose your house on Tuesday. And that's, that's where, okay, now we need to break through that barrier and get them to making an actual choice because a pre-foreclosure situation is fundamentally problem avoidance in, in a lot of cases. Not, not always, but in a lot of cases. Lately, our, our sub twos, to, uh, we're so picky about our sub twos. So it's something that just happens very rarely for us um, because people, I don't know why, but a lot of people in the foreclosure situation aren't taking care of their homes either. 
So if it's a house that is taken care of and it's not going to have too much repair costs for us whenever we take over those payments and, you know, your interest rate's good, all of that, then it's a good option for us for a sub two. But a lot of times they haven't taken care of the home. It's in disrepair. There's, it's just not, even taking over what they owe is going to be way too high compared to the amount of work that needs to go in. So that's so, when we so look really, at the so short sale. It just depends. No, that's a, that's a good point. So that's really, again, that's really into acquisition strategy heavy, as opposed to a lot of people that try to do the dispo strategy heavy, mm -hmm. leading with dispo, leading with what you know you can sell it for. And if you're wrong 50% of the time, wrong 80% of the time, well, how do, we, how do we fix that? We fix it by, again, leaning heavily on acquisitions. So what we've noticed and what I want to spend the next couple of minutes talking about is when we first identified this uh, difference in our company, We've always been really, really good at acquisitions, and we've always been pretty good at dispo. Nothing against or for either side, really. It's just like when when a solopreneur is doing their own deals and they're negotiating directly with the sellers, they tend to lean on the acquisition side because they know they have different options on the dispo side. They can wholesale it, they can flip it, they can wholesale it, they can retail it, they can you know whatever it might be, um, assuming that they have a diverse business. But so if you transition that and start building out your team, where we noticed was okay, let's lean on acquisitions, let's lean on negotiation tactics and strategies. But how is that going to transition now to dispo? Because I know if I buy right, I can sell it for whatever. I can sell it on any kind of option. If I buy for the best price ever, I can sell it on any option possible over here. But I want to make money. Like I want to make as much money as possible. So how do I how do I do that while talking to dispo? And we were doing what quarterly reviews uh, a couple weeks ago just talking to the team about like issues in the company, um, hurdles that people need to overcome. And you identified a couple of things that I didn't know about that was really kind of informative about our way of approaching deals. Run us through like what we talked about then. Yeah, so I mean, it's all really just about communication. Um, as we were mentioning before, you know, I came from a solely wholesaling base. So our way over there was dispo heavy. So I was the one that looked at every single deal. I underwrote every single deal. I told our people, you know, what I could sell it for and they would lock it up based on that. Obviously, we just, you know, spent the last 30 minutes talking about why that doesn't work. So now transitioning over here, um, where we're more acquisition heavy, it, you really have to rely on communication with the acquisition and dispo team. Um, now I'm not the one, you know, running these comps. I'm not the one telling them what I could sell it for. Instead, they're having, you know, these good conversations with sellers and locking it up based on that. Um, so because of that, we need to focus more on communicating, um, you know, during that handoff phase. Okay, we, we talked to the seller, we got them at the price we want, we have it contracted, now it's time to hand it over to Dispo to sell it. The best way to do that is by communicating. You know, you can't just give um, your Dispo team a deal. You can't just give them an address. So what, 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 what were we doing? It. What were we doing that wasn't working <laughs> great? Like, and, and I won't say it's bad because we're selling stuff really well. Yeah. But Tony and I both in the company, we just kind of roll with shit. Like for this house, we know that, okay, we're going to do the XYZ with it for dispo, like whatever. So just lock it up for a good price. Um, the breakdown is that you don't know that. Mm -hmm. So you're like, well, what's the, I just got a deal that I have to sell. What the hell? I don't know anything about this deal. So how do we, how was that going down? And then how are we trying to address it? Yeah. So the, the way it was initially going down is here, Donovan, here's an address, sell it for this price. Done. I didn't have any information on the, um, the property, the repairs needed, you know, I would have to go look up beds and baths myself. These are all things that I, I used to do myself prior to even locking these deals up. So you were doing the stuff anyway, but now we already have the contract locked up because we know we got it for a good price. 
Right. You might not even know what we have it for. Like you can look up the contract, obviously, yeah. no. But we just say, hey, sell it for two hundred. You're like, okay. I mean, is there a house there? I don't know. Yeah, and then from from that point, I mean, I got to go run my own comps too. You know, I, I get an address, I get the the sales price that we want for it. Oh, okay, now I got to go run my own comps because you know part of selling a deal is believing what you're selling, and you can't do that if you don't know what numbers you know you're giving these buyers. So um, you know, going running my own comps, coming up with my own ARV, and then you know butting heads with acquisitions. You know whether our ARVs are the same or not, whether our repair costs are the same or not. Um, so yeah, it kind of just goes back to, obviously it helps having the half of my job taken off, um, you know, acquisition, doing their part and handling the actual acquisition role um, with, you know, running the numbers and getting everything locked up. So I just wasn't used to getting that part of my role off of my shoulders. Um, so then it just kind of comes back to, you know, going back and actually running my numbers and seeing what they saw you know, when they were talking to the seller, because I wasn't in the room when they're having these conversations with the sellers. I don't know, um, you know, what the pain points are. I don't know what our timeline restrictions are. Um, all I'm given is an address and a sales price. You don't right. know if the house smells great or terrible, mm -hmm. if it has fleas or not, right? Like some of those things that you only get from being in the house. Yeah. Right. You don't so, know that information. That's a good point. A lot of these things are structural and relatively easy to fix. We fixed those early on. Mm -hmm. We fixed, you know, bedroom, bathrooms. We fixed maybe um, ARV comps, that kind of stuff. Like that's, that's all pretty easy to fix early on. But the stuff, you're right, the stuff that isn't as easy to fix is the percep perception of the property, the perception of the deal. Because uh, again, if all you're doing is basing it on numbers, 80% minus repairs, hey, Mr. Seller, tell me when the last time you put your roof on was. Like, A, you're not doing acquisitions good, but we've already beat that horse. Yeah. Now we're leading, again, we're leading with Dispo, where Dispo was leading acquisitions. And the perception of the house then comes from a Dispo perspective as opposed to the perception of the house coming from acquisitions. Acquisitions have seen the house, they've been to the house, they know what it smells like, they know what it looks like, they know about the pee bottles in the corner, they know about the falling down drywall. Yeah, you take pictures of that, but I take pictures and I see a bunch of bottles in a house like, I don't know, yellow, maybe they like collecting apple juice, like I don't know. So we don't have the feel for what the house is and we're a touchy-feely business, right? We're, we're touchy-feely folks. Um, so now acquisitions takes more of a leading role in terms of like, here's the feel of the steel structure. And that, that isn't a great way to want to think about your business because you want to think it's nuts and bolts and numbers and CRM and inputs and outputs and all this stuff. But if we're in a people business, we need to understand what's the deal on the deal. So how does that, how does that um, work with acquisitions? I think the handoff just needs to be a sit down conversation, mm -hmm. person to person, right? Because the same thing that makes acquisitions good is we're sitting down with the seller, right? The thing that's gonna help dispositions be good is that we're sitting down with you to tell you all the info, all the ammo that you need the to be able to sell the, the house. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, what's it smell like? It's got a bunch of fleas. You're gonna like warn, no buyer, no even wholesale buyer, even investor buyer, no buyer wants to walk through a house that's full of fleas with you know shorts and flip-flops on. Mm -hmm. And if Dispo doesn't know that, you're sending through 20 buyers to something on lockbox in the middle of nowhere that's got fleas out the ass in the middle of summer in Texas. So now all your buyers are pissed off. So now you're leaving money on the table because you didn't prep the you didn't prep the end buyer right. 
Yeah, and the best thing, what makes the best disposition agent is someone that truly knows what they're selling and knows everything about the deal. You don't want these buyers coming to you asking questions and you know you have to tell them, oh, sorry, I don't know the answer. Let me talk to my partner and I'll get back with you. I want to be able, you know, whatever question or rebuttal that I'm given, I want to have an answer for them right away. And that comes with you know knowing about your deal, communicating with acquisitions, knowing the all the dirty, grimy details of the house, and um, not only the house but the the seller and the situation. You know, like we we're talking about a lot of the timeline restrictions. Um, you know, a lot of buyers are ask, you know, when does this need to close by? Yeah, there might be a, a close date that you could tell them, but what about that pre foreclosure date? What if like this buyer might get, oh, you know, this is set to close. November 1st, my uh, lender probably can't close, you know, till the 5th, but that's fine. I'll, I'll just put it off. These are things that, you know, as a disposition agent, you should tell your buyers so that they can prepare and have everything in place on their end. Because, you know, nothing's said and done until everything is funded and closed. I don't care if you have an assignment. I don't care if you have Ernest in. You know, we, we had a guy, assignment Ernest in for two weeks, two days before closing, came and, you know, complained about things that we communicated to them. And, you know, that made the deal potentially fall through. So it's all about just communicating, making sure that the buyer knows absolutely everything that they need to know about the deal, not just the beds, baths, and repairs, because, I mean, anyone can look that up and just see it by walking. But, you know, the actual details of the deal and that way that they know how to perform and they know what we're doing on our end to perform. No, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. So we've talked about why the traditional model doesn't work as well in a declining marketplace or even a flattening marketplace. We talked a lot about what it is to lead with Dispo and when that's a good time to do business. If you have a property, for example, that you know you know you can sell it for a certain price and you have a seller stuck on a price, but you have a pocket buyer that you know will buy in that area in that submarket, then you leave with Dispo because you make a couple bucks. But if you leave with Dispo 100% of the time, instead of leading with acquisitions, you're just leaving so much money on the table. You're leaving thirty thousand. I think our record is sixty thousand, beating our competition by being lower than them, lower than their offer, by building those relationships and building this rapport with the actual like primary seller, and that's that's how you sustain a downturn. That's how you sustain a market that's shifting. A lot of people talk about adapting. Well, adapting fundamentally means you buy better and you sell better. But unless you know like structurally how you do that, your business is going to be in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the reason a lot of uh, wholesaling companies that go based off that strategy end up failing when the market changes because they don't listen to these buyers that are giving them feedback and then, you know, going back and communicating to acquisition like, hey, these buyers are telling me in this area, you know, deals are only selling for this, so we need to start buying better. A lot of them, you know, they just continue what they're doing and when the market changes, they don't know how to adapt or, you know, communication just within the company doesn't happen to where they can adapt when the market changes. And I think that's why a lot of my friends that wholesale, unfortunately, um, you know, have gone under. I think that's why a lot of um, just people that I've met, their businesses have gone under whenever the market did change, just because not only are they not, you know, looking at all the downward trends and adjusting and adapting to it, but they're not communicating within their own company to each other. You know, the the best thing about working together and being so close is that, you know, I can go a couple feet over and talk to you about what buyers are telling me about this specific deal. And because of that, you know, we can backtrack and whether that's reaching out to the seller, you know, renegotiating or just knowing, you know, next time we buy in this area, we might have to buy a little bit cheaper. Um, and, you know, if you're solely stuck on 75 or 85 percent, 
you, you can't adapt to that. No, that makes sense. Yeah, if you have one exit strategy and one entrance strategy in this marketplace, I think you're in a lot of hurt. If you're selling just the hedge funds in DFW at 89% and you're buying at 80%, man, you're making a ton of money when everything's going up like that. But what no one understands about you know hedge funds is they're not a big secret. They want to buy properties. Yeah. So they weren't like, oh, I have a secret hedge fund that wants to buy shit. Like They want to be found. Mm-hmm. If they're not around to be found or if they're tightening up on their stuff, um, it's gonna. If, if you rely on that 100% for your dispo, then that's going to impact your business in a big way. What, what else do you have, Jessica? Well, I think some other things we needed to get better at on the acquisition side, and I say us in general, wasn't me, mm-hmm. but we got to make sure that everything's in your contract, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, things that were discussed just verbally, right? Like if we're closing on it, of course, like we're going to follow through with, we're going to do what we said we were going to do. But if it's not written in the contract, then the dispo side doesn't necessarily know about it if you didn't have that conversation or whoever you're assigning it to, if they get that underlying contract, they might not know what was in there either um, or what was discussed, right? Mm-hmm. So just being really specific about you know, what's staying on the property, what the seller's retaining, what the timelines are for a lease back and what all of the discussion was there, if there's money being held back, right? Just being really specific and making sure that everything that you discussed is in the contract. Just, you know, if you told them they don't have to clean out every item from the house, right? But then they tell you they're leaving 70% of their stuff in the house, right? That's a little bit of a different conversation. So just make sure that everything's detailed in that contract and it makes it a lot easier for Dispo too. Yeah, because I mean, that's all that the buyers see is the contract. If, if they get a contract and it says property sold as is, you know, they're accepting that property as is. But if we had a conversation with the seller telling them, you know, you can keep the solar panels, you can take that shed in the back, you know, all those cars in the garage, you can leave them. Like things like that need to be stated in the contract because the buyer's not going to know about it. And if the buyer doesn't know about it, then, you know, that that makes us look bad because we're the ones that contracted it. And at the end of the day, it'll fall back on us. And it makes it so you can sell it for more, too. If, if we have a property that's full of a bunch of stuff and the sellers legitimately are going to take all the stuff with them. Now, how often does that happen? Not very often. But maybe we tell them, OK, we're going to hold back 7K from the sellers if they don't take all the stuff out of the house uh, because they said they're going to. It's like, hey, no problem. You know what? We'll hold back 7K if you get all the crap out in a week after closing or whatever, you get your 7K back. Now, if we have that, now we have the 7K as ammo for the end buyer about like, hey, we have a holdback, so you can now afford to pay us more for the steal because if they don't if they don't take the crap out, then you get the 7K. Or maybe we take the crap out for 3,500 bucks and we make extra money. We make the extra 3,500 bucks. So it's about, like it's about creating an actual deal when there's, yeah, it's uh, in a normal market, well, in an upward marketplace again, you can stumble into a good deal regardless. But it's about it's not about creating a deal necessarily that's not a deal. It's about taking a good deal and making it better by better serving the buyers and better serving the sellers by having more honest conversations with both parties. Yeah, and I mean, same thing with leasebacks. Um, you know, leasebacks are very popular these days. A lot of people, they need the proceeds in order to purchase their next property, so they might need a leaseback. Or, you know, they might just need... They need time to get their shit out. Yeah, they, they might need, need money, more time. They need money to move wherever it is and they need, and the only way they get money is because we bought the property from yeah so these are all like data points that a help us buy better with acquisitions mm-hmm. but b give us ammo for the end buyer or okay we have 5k hold back for stuff we have a 5k hold back for a three-day lease back yeah. if the seller defaults on either one of those 
then the end buyer gets a piece of that or we get a piece of it because we help solve the problem in the middle. Yeah, and we have to make sure that we communicate that to the end buyer too. You know, you are purchasing a property with the lease back. This amount will be held back. It will be forfeited to you. And you also have to make sure that they're comfortable with not only the deal, but the verbiage on the lease back. Mm -hmm. um, we have plenty of deals where, you know, it's a two-week lease back, 5K held back, just basic clean cut. We go to the closing table and the buyer comes back like, no, I need this completely worded different. Maybe not uh, different with the numbers, obviously, because, you know, two weeks, 5K is what's agreed upon. But that buyer needs to be comfortable with what they're purchasing. So, I mean, I had one guy, um, we wrote the lease back real clean cut. And all he wanted in there was pro our seller to vacate and hand over keys. He wanted hand over keys, you know, in that lease back. So just making sure that you're communicating with your buyer and giving them what they want. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones purchasing this property. And they're the ones that it's going to have to deal with evicting the tenant if that tenant doesn't get out or getting those keys in this example. Yeah, and that's all stuff that we work with in our company. Like that we definitely bump into with a lot more volume. Because again, if we're the end buyer on every deal, if we're flipping everything, if we're wholetailing everything, we have control of it. We can overlook some of these issues because we know both sides of the transaction, or at least we know the acquisition side really well. Mm -hmm. But if we're trying to do more volume and we're trying to adapt, then we need to actually solve bigger problems for both both parties of the transaction. Yeah. Well, all three parties of the transaction because we make more money by solving their problems. What you got, Jessica? I don't know. I think just work on your communication. That's my key thing, right? Yeah. In your company, whatever you can do, if you think they know it, don't just assume they know it. Like, really make sure that they know it. I think that's my big... And it's in writing. Yes, and it's in <laughs> writing. There we go. Even that way, better. <laughs> yeah, if it's in writing, you know, no one can go back and say that this wasn't said or this wasn't agreed upon. Yeah. That goes for the seller and, you know, dispo side. If, if you have it in writing, then it protects everybody involved. You know, we can have these conversations over the phone and in person all we want, but... If it's not in writing, if it's not on the contract, then no one's protected at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and the more you scale up business, the more, what's the best way to build a system is to do a bunch of stuff and figure out what breaks mm -hmm. and then fix what's broken. If you're buying and selling a couple of houses a year, even one or two a month, then that's a lot different than acquisition literally has to go out to an appointment right after this call or right after this podcast and go look at a house. So you have a bunch of stuff going on. Now there's more likelihood of stuff breaking because yeah. you're just simply going to have the volume to actually have that happen. I think we've got a good fix in place, right? So we've, mm -hmm. we have the CRM that has most of the data in it, but it's more of the, the communication. The it's communication. The people business. Yeah. It's the people business that makes it an actual people business. Like all the tools should facilitate the people and should facilitate the deal flow. It's not the other way around. The people shouldn't be just using the tools because the tool is the objective. The tool is the tool to help facilitate the people aspect of the business. I think that's the biggest part that we're really coming back to and what sets us apart from a lot of the competition is it's about the people again, because you can't just buy a contract and spray and pray, as they say for realtors, like just put it out there and hopefully someone takes it. It doesn't work like that. You, you can if you buy well enough, but you gotta adapt the business and you gotta have these real conversations with real people. And I mean, the tool in CRM you use is only as good as the person using it. Yeah, so it goes back to the people. Yeah. Those next quarterly reviews we do. We're same team, same, same. We got this. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, you guys. This was the inaugural episode of the Institute of Higher Learning podcast. If you like more podcasts like this, you can follow us on all the podcasting platforms. I didn't know this, but it just like pushes out there. You just push a couple buttons and it goes. It's awesome. It's the best thing ever. We're going to start doing this podcast probably weekly, talking about doing real deals in the real estate market as the market changes. It's going to be talking about uh, talking to entrepreneurs in the space, in real estate, in finance, in business, uh, work-life balance, if that's even a thing. And we're going to have a good time following the podcast. If you know anyone wants to be on, hit us up. See you on the next podcast. Bye.